our Pasuk is, which one is it again? Lamed, right? So it's really at the beginning of, at the end of this section. So let's let's just read the Pasuk carefully. Right, you pointed to the problem. We don't know what Amon is necessarily, but let's say, what, what does what does Amon mean in terms of the shot of the Pasuk? I don't think it's such a simple answer either. But Amon. So again, it's wisdom talking. Chachma is talking. And who's him? Who's he? Who's the pronoun? And I will be by him, next to him. Right. God, exactly. So what's Amon? No, but what is, in other words, I will be an Amon. What does Amon well, mean? It's translated very different from its usual meaning. It's as a, as a, a nursling, a plaything. Uh, well, the shashum is a plaything, and, there, and a yeah. nurse is actually a pretty yeah. standard meaning of the word in Tanakh. It appears a few times in Tanakh. Yeah, but, but the here, here it says nursling. It's not the same thing. as the. Oh, which translation is that? This I'm using the stone. Uh-huh. But it's, okay. it's his, it, it, he's God's plaything. Wisdom, she, Correct. rather. Correct. So, wisdom. I mean, we can use a little method to help us out here, right? The classic way that Sukkim, and especially Mishlei, are written is they're parallel to each other. So if you know what Shashuim is, which is a plaything, so it would mean something like a plaything. That doesn't entirely work here. But the truth is, for our purposes, since we're not studying Tanakh right now, but we're studying Medrash, and we care about Medrash for Medrash's sake, right? Not as a way, a means of understanding Shad and Sukkim, it means Amon. We don't know what it means. And we're going to have four different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this is the Pasuk that Rabbi Yoshaya begins with, and he focuses with, and he focuses specifically in one word. Okay, so why don't you continue? Okay. Um, Amon, uh, Keep on going. We'll, okay. we'll read the first. There are three. Okay, and then it goes through. Okay, good. So, right, so we have three different things here that are listed. So what are these things? Right. But they're grouped initially as three things. Well, that's a very good point. Right? The first grouping is three. Then we're going to have a davar acher later. I think there's some significance there in the way it's grouped. Right? It's really, it's written in a very specific way. But the first grouping of explanations for what Amon means, this X, let's call it, is pedagogue. What is pedagogue? Right? Well, teacher. Right. 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 And the the Greek word has come into our yes. language. But teacher isn't exactly right. Even mechanech. I know he says mechanech is, is a translation. A pedagogue was, oh, I should say one more thing about language. Right? I said this is the Aramaic, not of the Gemara, of the Bavli, but of Eretz Yisrael. And a lot of the words, fortunately not in the thing that, in the part that we're studying now, but a lot of the words from other languages come from Greek because Eretz Yisrael, um, there was a lot of Greek spoken at the time. And pedagogue doesn't simply mean a teacher, but more like a tutor. In other words, an someone, instructor? an instructor is good, exactly. In other words, it's not simply someone who stands up in a classroom, and you can even see this in Medrash itself, but typically, let's see, the king, right? There's so many mashalim of kings in Medrash. The king would have, would hire a pedagogue who would tutor his child, who would tutor the future king, you know, the prince. So that's what the pedagogue is. So you mean it, it wouldn't be, a pedagogue would be for an individual or a few children? Generally. And there would be a more intimate uh, relationship than, you know, how we normally think of a teacher nowadays who simply, you know, stands up in the classroom and then leaves. But there's sort of a mentoring, instructing that goes on. 
So um, the first explanation is pedagogue. What's, and we're going to get back to this in a second, and we're never going to finish the second medrash. I don't know why I even tried to. Okay, Amon Mechuseh. What does that mean? Okay, and finally, or not hidden, a little more precise. Covered, right. When something's covered, it is hidden, but it's covered. And finally, Amon Mutzna. I think that there you're talking more about hidden. Okay. So, what? Are, and now I'm opening the floor to all of us. Wait, what are these three explanations doing? Wait, immediately they're ex- explaining a word. What does this word Amon mean? But if you pl- if you plug it back into the verse, basically the other question that's being asked is, what's the relationship between wisdom and a Kaddish Baruch Hu that's being described here? Right. So we're not talking about the Shashui, and that's a whole other fascinating thing that. Wisdom, and I should add, Chazal seems to understand wisdom directly as Torah. So Torah is God's plaything. That's a fascinating concept. But here we're talking about the Amon. The Amon, the, the Torah is, wisdom is, God's pedagogue, God's covering, or is covered for him, right? Or is hidden. What 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 is happening here? Let's talk, now let's go back and before we see where this comes from, how they know Amon is a pedagogue, what, what exactly would this mean? Right, that Chachma is describing her relationship with God via Yetzlo Amon. What does this mean? What does it mean that Torah is saying, wisdom is saying, I am, it's, I almost shudder to say the words, I am God's pedagogue. But even if a pedagogue isn't like this grandmaster instructor, but is a more informal instructor, you have a very interesting relationship in terms of the hierarchy. Right? God has a pedagogue. Yes. Maybe it like defines, like defines what God is. Um, like like to say that um, Torah is the tutor or like the instructor for God. So it's like kind of that's Okay, good. I think that's ultimately what I mean. Yes, a name again. Oh, Sorry. Like, almost like an influence on him, like what he uses, elements that he uses in order to ask, you know. Good. Shades of the Devaracher, in a sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, was, I, I was going to say something not so much, but it sounds more like um, the, the wisdom is not, not that it's so much separate from Hashem, but separate from the action. Okay, so in other words, and using the Torah. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, so we have to say that it's low means for God. Okay, what else could it mean? He created it to be used for something else. Good, so that's another possibility. The pedagogue is not God's own pedagogue, but is a pedagogue that God will, maybe if we use that mashal again, God's the king, Chachma is the pedagogue, and the pedagogue will then teach another entity, for example, us, right, the Jews. That's another possibility. And there are many possibilities here. I, I only emphasize this now, and this is not the punchline. The punchline, I think, really comes at the end of the Medrash. Because <clears throat> there is a certain, and this is not a real word, radicality. There's a certain radical nature of Medrash that sometimes we sort of slip, you know, slips us by classic example, even of this form, and we're going to get to this in a minute, the, the Medrash is about to explain how it knows Amon is a pedagogue. 
right? The form, many of us are most familiar with this from the Seder night, where the center of the Haggadah is not the Misa of Rabbi Lazar Ben Azariah Shana, but is in the very technical, actually, Medrash from Mechilta that goes through a series of Pesukim and defines each, you know, each, uh, each element, right? This refers to, you know, low, you know, loyal de malach. Each pasuk is interpreted and defined. And often around the Seder table, we simply breeze through it, right? That central part of the, of the Haggadah, because it, you don't really consider as to what the implication is, what the ramifications are of the way Chazal defining things. That's true in, in their means of derivation, how they derive the various things. We sort of just take their word for it. Um, but it's also true just for the form itself. If Amon pedagogue means, and I don't think it's impossible, that the etzlo should be read that the pedagogue in a sense is, the Amon is a sense God's pedagogue, not like Rina was saying, you have something absolutely radical that when you stop and think about it, even if you'll sort of back back away from that by you know offering various interpretations, you have something radical that you, know, you really have to think through. What exactly does it mean? Right? Obviously, God creates the Torah. Right? God is the first is the first entity, and it's something that Medrash Rabbah is very much concerned with in this opening parak. Right? What is you know what comes before God? Nothing. Right? A Greek philosopher and the hand that they gave you asks Rabban Gamliel. You know, it seems we have proof that there's something before God. Obviously, that's not the case. So the notion that Torah is created but then serves as a pedagogue is radical. It has to be thought through, which we're not going to do here. We did a little of it, but just as an example for you know, thinking through each element, just very quickly, Amon Mechusa, or Mechusa, I should say. What is, what, what's that all about? Right, it's a covering. What exactly, what does that mean? Depending on how you translate the etzlo in the, in the Pasuk. What does it mean that the, that Chachmav function, is covered or functions as a covering? Yes. In other words, maybe in terms of his clothing, so to speak, the way he's he's manifest in this world. Yeah, exactly. Like the Torah is covering God. Like we can't necessarily see God, but we can see the Torah. Okay, good. And if that's the case, so let me just push you further. Then, then Amon is different. In what way? Good. In other words, basically, your interpretation sort of avoids a problem of repetition, of redundancy. Mechusa is sort of God's manifestation in the world, and Amon Mutsna is the fact that the Torah itself is, is, is hidden, ultimately. I actually like that interpretation, but I'm sure I'll hear others. Yes, Chava. For Mechusa, how does that fit back into the word, like, what's covered? Okay, so that's, that's an ambiguity here. Either, right, a slow Amon would mean that I, wisdom, and God's clothing... How's that Mechusa, then? Covering, his covering. In other words, something that covers him. You can't see God himself, but you see his covering, or his covering is manifest. What would you say? Because I would think that was Kisoi. Right. Well, that's an interesting question also because both of these terms, Mechusen, Mutsna, right, are referring to wisdom in a particular way as opposed to pedagogue. I don't know. We have to consider that. Okay. There are more things to be said about that, but we're running out of time. Let's now go into the interpretation as to where these things come from. Right? How do Chazal know 
in, these, in this triad that Amon could mean a pedagogue, Michuseh, or Mutzna. Right, so why do you keep on reading? Etham, yes. Okay. I'm sorry, that's the fourth. You're right. Okay, good. So where's this Pasuk from? I'll call on someone else for this. What Bemidbar, but what is it describing? Or who is it describing? Good. Right, and he's saying it it's almost as a question, right? I've my relationship with the nation has been Kasher Yisal Main Etayone. So what does Omein mean here? A nurse. Right. This means basically a nurse. And here it's not very difficult to see how Chazal got this interpretation. They see the word Amon and Mishlei. They're not sure exactly what it means. It describes wisdom. And they go to a Pasuk in Bamidbar where it's much clearer, right? That Amon has a relationship with the Yonik. That a Yonik is a nursing child. And there you have it. But how about the next one? Amon Mechuseh. Sure. Right, but again, it's more than simply the instructor, right, that he says pedagogue in the yeah, old sense, yeah, that he's someone who raises the child in a way. But you're right, it, it, there is a specific cultural meaning here, right? They were very familiar with these pedagogues. Maybe if we lived in Britain 150 years ago, we would also have more of a sense of it. Right, but then that sort of would be circular. They want to bring it home. I hear what you're trying to say. They're trying to emphasize this is a particular interpretation, so to speak, of the Pasuk in Bamidbar. Okay, the next one, Amon Mechuseh. Okay, so I eavesdropped on some of the Chavut that I saw that you that you had some problems with this based on the standard translations in Tanakh. Right? Putting aside the standard, standard translations, what do you think this might mean here? And certainly, how are Chazal trying to read this Pasuk in Eicha? Anybody? How would you how would you translate the Pasuk according to Chazal? And we're going to really have to do this in a Pasuk from Esther. That's sort of the shocky one. Yes, Chava. Yeah, that they were covered with clothing made of Right. It's describing, as this it's described many times in Eicha, the people who fell and who, you know, who tragedy came to from Benesha weren't only the poor people, but these were people who were had been, you know, girded in, in purple royal clothing and had then right, and then, then tragedy struck. Right. But the point that, that matters here is the Pazak is being read not as reared, right? I think the most common st- translation is based on really how it how Omain is used in Bamidbar, right? As as a rearing. It's not reared according to Chazal here, but Hamunim alei tola that those who were wearing, who were covered, I should say, in you know purple clothing. Okay, and finally, right, the last the last pasuk, right, which is Vayihi Omen et Hadasa. Okay, so this this is sort of a shocking one, and it, it, again, it goes to show you that when you're learning Medrash, don't simply learn Medrash to try to understand what Tanakh is. Right, but learn to try to understand how Chazal are reading Tanakh. I never, I had never encountered this, this explanation of what's going on in Esther Beis. Right, it's describing Mordechai's relationship. It's interesting. We have a lot of descriptions of relationship, relationships here, 
using the word omen, right? Pedagogue, right here, with the relationship between Mordechai and Esther, and I actually kind of gave this away. I don't know if you turn the page. But first of all, I gave you the psukim from Esther. Right? We, we all know these psukim. After Vashti is killed, and the psukim beforehand are very important. After Vashti is killed, Achishverosh is sad. He wants uh, a, a queen. Sends out you know, these people to basically hold a beauty contest. Um, and then we have Pasuk Hei, right? immediately coming after that. Right, Samuch. Right, Chazal are very interested in juxtapositions. When something is juxtaposed to something else, there must be almost always an organic connection. So look at Pasuk He. Describes right, Mordechai, we read this all out loud in, in Shul, um, where he came from, and then finally Zion. Right? Vahi Omen et Hadassah. So how do we translate this? And I'm sure all the Tanakhs translated as he raised Hadassah. Right? He reared her. Very similar to the translation in, in Echa. Um, I even looked around uh, at the standard we showed them. I didn't find any Rishon using this Medrash. They all understand that there's either they don't say anything or they understand that Esther is being raised. So here you have, and, and the Medrash doesn't even hint that something's, inter, at least from an interpretive perspective, is happening that's radical, right? Not simply radical theologically. What does it mean that God is, that, that Torah is God's pedagogue, if that's what it means? But. What does Omein mean here? So I, I gave you a Yalkut Shimoni. Yalkut Shimoni is a very late collection of Midrashim by someone named Shimon, who put them together in the Middle Ages. And he also understands the, um, the Pasuk the same way. Right? If you just look at it very brief, briefly, Okay, so he has the fact that he's raising her. Right? Here it's being... She was, it's interesting that it's phrased this way, she was hiding herself. I think it's much more explicit, I mean, it's implicit in a sense, but explicit in our medrash. The assumption of this medrash, this medrash is trying to say, Amon should be translated here as, perhaps, as hidden, just as Vahi Omen et means that Mordechai is hiding Esther. It's really a whole other way of looking at what's going on in Esther Bet, which is not our subject, but is interesting because we encounter it here, right? The standard translation, Mordechai raises Esther. It's a tragic story. She loses her parents. She's an orphan. Here, there's something else going on. Even though later Mordechai will change his tune and realize that Esther should be selected and he wants her to be selected to sh save the, the Jews. At this stage in the story, he's hiding her. He's responsible for Esther and he's fearful. I mean, it's horrific that the king is basically rounding up all the women. So he hides her, and this is how a man is being understood. I, I yes. don't understand where, from where comes the idea that Amon or Omen is connected to hidden. You're saying in terms of the etymology of the word? No, as far as all these... Uh, the, because they, basically they see, they, the they don't know exactly what Omen means in every context, right? This is sort yeah. of X. Okay. What is Omen? Yeah. Chazal, look at the use all their tools in their toolbox. One of the tools that they like is looking at the Parsha that's right next door. So right before this Parsha in Esther, it says that Achishverosh is sending out his men to gather in all the women. And then it has this verb that Mordechai is omaining Esther. What must Mordechai be doing? He must be hiding her. It's a way of interpreting. So just pulling it out of... I don't, know. I don't think it's pulling it out at all. I think it's actually a very good tool for explaining a... 
sort of ambiguous word. I also think there's a connection between. But why weird, would they choose that word? Because it fits the story. Else. I understand. I mean, it, this isn't sort of how you know a Pashtun would operate, but it, no. I think it's a good. It's a good means of interpreting the story. Okay. Yes. Correct. That's right. Right. In other words, at the end of the pasuk, it reiterates. Right. Why does it reiterate her beauty? Thank you. That's definitely going on here. Her beauty is reiterated. What does that have to do with the fact that he ifromen means that he raises her? Okay, so she was beautiful. It's basically the end of that pasuk is tying us back to the events prior where Achashverosh sends out his men. Sends out his men. Mordechai quote omains Hadassah, Esther. We don't know what that means. Because she, and she was very pretty. So it doesn't simply mean rearing her. Even if she wasn't pretty, he would have reared her. He he hides her because she was pretty, and the king sent out she men. She's vulnerable. Exactly. Yes. Um, I understand from the pasuk, uh, that he protected her, he hid her. Correct. But the beginning of right, Yalkut Shimoni. How does he? That she, Correct. She I don't know exactly why that happens. In the narrative in Yalkut Shimoni, it looks like it's trying to do two things. It's trying to explain Omain in the traditional way that he rears her, but then it still has sort of a hint of the hiding. I'm not sure. But yes. Herself. Yes. Herself. Correct. I don't know exactly why that happens in the marriage. Okay. Yes. And the pasuk is Rumora Yehi Yimalak Chal Mordechai Lo Levat. So I think the Alchimoni is just considering the fact that he's in the first half. But because the Rumora Yehi Yimalak Mordechai Megadla, and then it's going back to explain the beginning. And now this is what's happening. Yeah, but where does it? There's where does he get the hint that she's actually being hidden? It is interpreting that way. In other words, and you think just the end of the pasuk is what's supplying the yeah, fact that he raises her? Yeah, I think that's that's possible. It still is strange. No, uh, it's still strange that Sandra, that what Sandra said that that it's um, it says Miss Masterdet that's not that she's hiding herself. That I can't really account for. Okay, let's continue. Um, and again, I'm sorry I talked about a tria, a triad. There are actually four interpretations. I'll just read this one quickly because we don't have really any time. Amon Rabata, right? This is Amon in the sense of greatness. Getting back to wisdom, let's leave Esther, right? Wisdom is God's Rabata, something great. Kamadatema, Hatepti Mino Amon, right? This is a Pasuk in Nachum that describes what? The destruction of, pending destruction of Ninveh, correct. And in, in talking to Ninveh, personifying Ninveh. Ninveh is just before, and now this is Egypt. This is already connected to Egypt. Well, I think it's still Ninveh, but the Pasuk itself is saying, are you Ninveh better than uh-huh. No Amon? Right? No Amon, in terms of yeah. shot, is a place. I don't know, does, do people disagree? I think that's what's happening. No Amon is a place. Are you Ninveh better than No Amon? No Amon had been destroyed. And now you're going to be destroyed. That's what's going on in terms of shot. It's not read entirely that way according to the Medrash, because the Medrash knows of a place called No. Right? Metagamina Ha'at Tevami Alexandria Rabata Diatva Naharvata. Are you better than Alexandria, which uh, the Great, I should say, which sits between the rivers? And in other words, where does that Targum come from? Right? The Medrash knows of this Targum, of this Aramaic translation of the Pasuk. Why does the Targum call it Alexandria the Great? Right? Rabita. It must be that the Targum is interpreting Amon in the sense of greatness. There's a lot to discuss here, but we don't have time to do it. I'm sorry. And now we have the punchline. And I, I think there's something significant going on here in terms of the structure. Right? We have four 
um, initial descriptions of what Ammon is. And then, sort of tacked on, right, the Medrash says, Davar Acher. Right? I don't think this is sort of happen chance. I think this is a way of sort of building up the suspense. I'll give you four interpretations. This is a common te- speaking technique. Really, you want to get to a main a main message, like I'm trying to get to at the end of the Medrash. And you talk about all different things along the way. There's something interesting about Esther, very interesting about, um, you know, Bamidbar with Moshe Rabbeinu. It's the same thing here. The Medrash ultimately, I think, is interest, it's interested in everything here, but it's ultimately interested in the punchline. The t- punchline begins with the Davar Acher. Any other volunteers to read the Davar Acher? This is actually in Hebrew, so you're lucky. Yes? No? Great. Okay. In a sense, correct. There's something else I can't fully account for here, and I don't know if I should drive myself crazy over it, but if you follow the Medrash, something sort of funny happens, right? In the Medrash, it describes a king, in the Mashal, I'm sorry, it describes a king, and when the king has palaces built, he doesn't simply do it himself. What that means is two things. First of all, he delegates authority to an architect, and that architect himself delegates, in other words, uses the help of these different architectural plans and blueprints to then build. Does anyone have an insight as to why that might happen? Yes. Correct. So God is this. God is is acting sort of as two two forces here. First of all, he's the Melech who commissions the building of the palace. What's the palace here, of course? The world. And he himself is also the architect. He's a jack of all trades, so to speak. And he also is the architect. I, I, I agree with you, but I still don't know why sort of in the Mashal and Shal that has to be emphasized. Maybe again to emphasize the greatness of God that he's able to do both of these things. Um, okay, so we have the Mashal here, which explains a new understanding of Amon. Again, we're really just focused initially here on Mishle Chet Pasuk Lamed, right? What does Amon mean? This is our fifth explanation of Davar Acher, which is separated from all the others, which is that, in a sense, the Torah is, and here it's explicit, right? That's what um, Chachma is. The Torah is God's tool, you know, his blueprint, in a sense, that he uses to build the world. Finally, right, the Petichta comes, you know, comes back to itself, right? And then it goes to a different Pasuk in Mishlei, right? Pasuk Chafbet. That's the beginning of this section. Remember I said that if you look at that section in Mishlei, 
It's all about wisdom. I mean, in a sense, Mishlei is full of wisdom. But Parachet is about wisdom. The beginning talks about wisdom in third person. When you begin Pazuk Chafbet, it talks about, wisdom talks about itself in the first person. And that's the Pazuk that it comes back to. So really, it's really it's a beautiful Patichta. This does not always happen. Where the end of that Parsha, that section of Mishlei, almost the very end, Pazuk Lamed, comes back to the beginning of that section, which is Pasuk Chafet, and that ultimately is what supplies the insight, right? Who cares about Mishle? Why do we start with Mishle here? So the justification, you really only reach the justification at the end. Aren't we interested? And this is an exegetical medrash, right? This could fun- function both, both ways, this particular interpretation. But ultimately, what do we care about right now? We don't care about Mishle, we care about Barishit, Parak, Aleph, Pasuk, Aleph. So that only ha- we spend a lot of we expend a lot of energy trying to understand what the word emon means. That matters ultimately because it supplies new insight into the first pasuk of Bereshit. But again, ultimately, why do we start with Mishlei? So I think the first answer you could you could sort of cynically say because these, as I just as I just said, these midrashim always start with the pasuk from Ketuvim. So we need a Pasuk from Ketuvim. But again, what's the next step? So then you might say, because we're starting to learn about Torah. This is the beginning of the Torah. So we're going to talk about Torah. And that's why we run straight to Mishlei Parakhet. That's also not correct. What's ultimately going on here? What's the argument of the Medrash? Yeah. Correct. Well, that that actually is the next parsha. I think there's something slightly different going on here. That is ultimately the question as to why we start here. But what the metric is getting back to is another undefined word. Right? This metric is all about philology of what does Amon mean? It's a very hard word in this context. What does it mean? Ultimately, it gets back to the question of what Bereshit means. This is interpreted exegetic, you know, sort of midrashically. It doesn't simply mean in the beginning, but almost Bereshit, right, with the beginning. Using something, God creates the world. This is all implicit. But what is the Reshit that God uses to create the world? So that's the Medrash's argument. The Reshit that God uses to create the world is... um, is ultimately Mishlei Parachet, is ultimately Chachma. So in other words, it works from a Pasuk and Mishlei trying to explain what Amon is. Amon means, is referring to Torah, but it's the aspect of Torah that's a blueprint that then helps us understand what Torah is all about, because this is the beginning of Torah, but ultimately what creation is all about. Creation is conducted by using an Amon, by using a plan. And that's hinted at in the verse of Bereshit Barelokim. Yes. But why wouldn't the Midrash start with that pasuk from Mishlei? Because okay, good. So that's ultimately a question of style, and I think it's a valid question of style. What's with these petich, though? This is this is very common. Right, the particular way it works is say, a little uncommon. Even to say that, like, okay, you know, it's a stylistic thing to say you're going from Ketuvim back to Torah, but why wouldn't they start from the pasuk that actually 
Okay, good. So here in, my, in the remaining two minutes, that brings us to the next section, which we're not going to be able to read um, the beginning of, which is the Galia Mikta, right? He's interpreting yet again another Pasuk that has nothing to do ostensibly with Bereshit, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. He's talking about a Pasuk in Daniel. And we have all different kinds of interpretations, but ultimately, I think, again, what the Medrash is interested in is with the end. Right? Amar Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Simon, Metchilat B'riyato Shalolam Hu Galia Mikta, Dichtiv Bereshit Baralokim Tashemayim. So you have a problem in general in Torah. The big challenge of learning Torah is that things initially are undefined. It says, There really isn't any, there isn't much detail as to how that initial creation works. We know how grass is created and trees are created and fish are created and animals and people are created. But that first initial creation of the world, we really get no details of the sky Right of the earth, how is it created? We don't really know. Right, where is it explained? Ah, there's a pasuk in Yeshayahu. Similarly, how do we know the Aretz? It says below Piresh. God isn't giving away his secrets. It doesn't say how he creates the earth. Where does it say it? Ah, there's a pasuk in Eov. It's actually fascinating that God uses sort of ice to create the world. And um, finally, how is Or created? It just says he creates it. We want a little more cosmology here. How does it work? Ah, there's a Pasuk in Tehillim that describes him sort of laying it out like a garment. That's how God created light, etc., etc. The, mes- the, the, the message here is really, I think, a response to your question. Why don't we start like Rashi starts? Why don't we start Bereshit Baralokim? What does Bereshit mean? Right? What is the Bereshit being referred to here? That would sort of that that method of, of, of Medrash, I think, would just become very flat. There's an argument being made here, and I don't have the time to develop it, that the reason why we start with Petichto, why we start with these other psukim from other parts of Tanakh, especially the far reaches of Tanakh, from Ketuvim, is because there is this idea that Torah requires what's called intertextuality. It requires us to use different texts from the canon. It requires us to use different texts from Nevi'im and Ksuvim to illuminate what happens earlier on. That's how Medrash works most spectacularly. That's how it usually works. It doesn't simply explain, you know, this means that, this means that. Even when it's said Amon, each time it, it tries to explain Amon, we're so used to it that we forget this is how it works. Each time it says Amon, it uses a Pasuk from elsewhere to help explain it. I see there are a lot of people waiting outside, so I'm going to end here. The, the message here of the Petichta as a style is you need to use other places in Tanakh. I have a famous Gemara in the Yerushalmi, right? And that ultimately, I think, is the message of Medrash. Medrash is an interpretive act, right? Everything that happens in Medrash, and to an extent even everything that happens in Gemara, is interpretation. Interpretation of the Mishnah, interpretation of something that somebody said. It's an interpretive act. What's the method that the, that the Medrash guarantees will work? This method of petich, this method of using other psukim to sort of fold back over itself and illuminate each, you know, each different part of the, of the Torah. Ultimately, you can look at the different sort of psukim and even words of the Torah as a jigsaw puzzle. Everything is somehow illuminating itself simultaneously. Sorry I went over time. Okay. So we'll continue with a different measures on Wednesday.
You have a class right now, right? Yeah. Okay, sorry.